What's up, everybody? This is Scott Lease here, bringing you another episode of the Surf and Sales podcast. I'm here with my good friend and co-host and co-founder of the Surf and Sales event, Richard Harris. And we are brought to you today by Salesforce Sales Cloud, Gong.io, the game changer for all things sales related, Vidyard.com and Lead411.com. Proud of our sponsors, grateful for their support. And uh, we're going to have an interesting conversation today about a topic that I'm super passionate about, and that's sales enablement. And uh, we're here with the Global Director of Sales Enablement from the UK, London, I believe, uh, at Global Data. His name's Aaron Evans. Welcome to the show, Aaron. Thanks for having me, guys. Very excited about our conversation. Uh, and obviously, big fans. So yeah, really excited. Well, we better not screw it up if he's excited, Scott. So. <laughs> yeah, yeah that's, hopefully we do our best work when the, the guest is excited. Aaron and I have, have never met before. We kind of exchanged, uh, you know, some messages on LinkedIn recently. Um, I think we got tagged in something similar or he wrote something and I was like, yeah, dude, I agree with that. So I reached out and, and said, hey, I'd love to have you on the show. Do you guys know each other at all, Richard? No, not at all. So at least I, I don't know Aaron. I don't know. Aaron, do you know me? No, and I mean that in the nicest possible way. I'm sure that your your fame is known. How could you not know who how important I think I am, Aaron? Come on, what a fucking humble brag. Do you right. know me? <laughs> All right, Aaron. Uh, let's start off with uh, you know, tell us a little bit about what you do in your day to day. Give people uh, you know some some sense of like what a global director of sales enablement means, is, does that kind of thing. Let's start there. Yeah, sure. I mean, look. Obviously, America is always ahead of the curve when it comes to business practice. So sales enablement in the UK is, is a relatively new thing. We're probably talking about a decade, right? Um, and I've, I've been doing it for the last 13 years of my career. If you could sum up what sales enablement fundamentally is, it's the conduit between most departments in the business and sales, right? So imagine you've got a product marketing team that's giving you important information that needs to be translated to the sales department. You've also got the strategy team that's working on stuff. This strategy needs to be transferred and ultimately translated into the sales department. Your marketing, your products, all these, these different divisions working in isolation. You become the funnel and also the conduit between those departments and sales. So what does that look like? Well, it's a combination of building processes, systems, uh, repeatable and scalable practices, Tons of training. A lot of my time is spent training and coaching, which I'm particularly passionate about. Um, so, yeah, so just imagine it as this big funnel between all those departments and the end user of sales enablement is obviously sales. Um, if you think about it like a, like a bit of the spectrum as well, right? Like, so I, I speak to a lot of people within sales enablement and you get the guys who are really sort of operationally focused. So they're building out the processes and they get a real kick out of watching businesses transform and business behavior change through process. But then you've got the execution guys who love doing the training, the coaching and, and, you know, getting their hands dirty with the reps and improving skill and competency. I definitely lean way to more, way more towards the kind of training and coaching side of it. That's where I get my kicks. I see the other part of it as being an important part, but not particularly fulfilling an interesting part, although I do enjoy it in part. I have so many questions already just off of this definition. Let me, let me start with, you said that um, the UK is about a decade behind in business practices. But you've been in sales enablement for 13 years, I think you said. Um, if I go back 13 years, and correct me if I'm wrong, Richard, if I go back 13 years, I don't think I knew what sales enablement was 13 years ago. So 
you being in the UK, how did you get so ahead of the curve and into this field um, when it was, you know, at its, uh, when it was just dawning? Yeah, I guess that it was never called sales enablement. And that's what I like to say is that I've worked in sales enablement before it was even called sales enablement, right? So you imagine those practices that I just spoke about before, they were finally codified and then built out as a job role and built out as a job function in a business department. Um, and I've been doing all those things for years in businesses, but no one ever turned around and went, oh, I guess Peter Aaron is the sales enablement guy. It was like, well, he's the sort of trainer come sort of, you know, uh, sales expert, which I hate using that term, but that's how it's perceived, who's going to help you with this stuff here. So like, think about onboarding as an example. That's something that sits under sales enablement. So you're seen as probably just being called the trainer, which is like a, a generic loose term for all yeah, the other things. Heard of the sales trainer term. Yeah, <laughs> yeah exactly, right? That, that's kind of the point, right, is that within time, you find this sort of defragmentation of different operations and parts of a business, and then they get lumped under something else. And we're seeing it at the moment with things like revenue operations. Well, what does that mean? Well, it's probably a combination of sales operations and sales enablement plugged together. And that's fundamentally what it is, right? And this is really common, right? Like, you know, I don't know about you guys, but when I first got into sales, you didn't have experts who did inbound and experts did outbound and, and account managers you kind of did a bit of a 360 yeah. role and then these roles get separated out and then the people specialize in these specific things as well um so yeah i, I guess i was very fortunate because sales enablement is so hot topic at the moment like every business is clambering over themselves to build out like a really functional sales enablement department and i've been lucky that i've been doing it for so long that even as a 37 year old dude I'm considered to be a bit of a veteran in the world of sales enablement, right? So yeah, it's it's uh, the timing was right. The timing was definitely right. As you as you talk about this, right, and, and I think we're seeing this to your point, you know, rev ops, sales ops, you know, training versus coaching versus sales enablement. Where does sales enablement sit? Are you reporting to a CRO directly? Are you part of the sales ops team, the revenue ops? Are you side by side where now it's you know best practices, you have a sales ops team, a rev ops team and an enablement team? Like how, where do you sit when you build this out? It's a great question. And, and I think we're kind of ahead of the curve and this is where I see the sales enablement function moving. I think it's gonna go higher up the organization because it's it's so twinned with strategy, right? And it's so twinned with things like product roadmap. And it's so twinned with basically big strategic decisions that are being made within an organization. I can only see it going higher. So we work hand in hand with strategy, which is quite unique. Most businesses have it working under like CRO, and then it just becomes a bit of a slave to the sales division. Well, actually, sales is the end customer. Really, you're actually working in harmony with about five or six different departments that I mentioned before. And that all starts with strategy. So if you've got a bigger strategic initiative that's happening this quarter, you don't turn around and go, okay, great, off you go. It's like, okay, this is happening next quarter. This is what we need to get working on. Here's five divisions you've got to collaborate with. And then you've got to basically try and distill that down into sales to have a, like a, a message that they can start selling to customers. You need to be able to certify that message. You need to be able to train on that message. You need to be able to track the competency growth. So who do you, you know, at, at your organization or if you're building the right organization, who, do the, who does sale, head of sales enablement, you know, uh, report into? And is there going to be a chief sales enablement officer, right? I see that. I see it moving that way. I'm currently reporting to the CSO, right, the, the chief strategy officer, who, who, who basically is working hand in hand with the CEO. So I, I see very, very quickly, it, it, even within the next sort of two or three years, 
the sales enablement moving up into the C-suite because it's becoming more powerful and important. If you look at if you look at COVID as an example, right, and I know it's the sort of expedient thing that everyone rushes to, but it makes sense. You had a whole business moving remote overnight. Well, everything changed. Businesses strategy pivoted, right? From product all the way through to how we start selling. And who was at the the, the kind of coalface and the leading leading edge of that was sales enablement. This is like the busiest time we've ever had because we've got right, we're we're moving into a new market or we're we're pivoting on our strategy and, and with our product, or we're actually trying to attack a new type of customer. And on top of that, we've got 300 people, 400 people sitting at home who now need to learn to go and sell in a different way. So I can only see it moving up the more tumultuous and more unpredictable the market becomes. What's the uh, what's the pushback that you get in regards to getting a seat at the the executive table and and what do you say to those people who would give you that pushback? Well, I've always said, right, and th- this is the, 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 the moniker that, the, well, the, the, the kind of epithet that salespeople, sales enablement people should live by is that the top of the business always sees value in what sales enablement does because it's so quick and nimble and execution focused. The very bottom of the business always sees what sales enablement does, which is the end user, the salesperson, because like a shit ton of really cool, uh, you know, like content or training or coaching, but you've got this big lump in the middle that doesn't really get the value because they're not the end user. They don't really interact with you daily. So the, the biggest pushbacks I've ever seen is from management structures, not truly understanding the value of what sales enablement does. And then that being pushed north up to the CEO. But we're really lucky. Our CEO is quite forward thinking in that way, that he sees it as being such a key part of the uh, organization but if you are getting pushback from CEO, you've just got to basically paint the picture of what the reality is, is that you touch all of these departments. And if they are siloed or isolated, if you've got a timeline to execute on something, you're just not going to do it with clarity. If, you, if you're just hoping they all come together with the right message, it's got to go through one department. And that is, is obviously- one, one, thing I've, one thing that I've heard <clears throat> sales VPs say is that they can't figure out how to quantify the value of, of your role. And so yeah. therefore, when they go to ask for it uh, from the CEO or the CFO, they get shot down. And, and I get people message me probably once or twice a week um, who say, hey, I heard you on the podcast talking about how the first hire you make is a, a head of you know sales enablement, sales ops, whatever you want to call it. How the hell did you, you know, get that? Like, how did you communicate it? So can, can you give some advice to, um, both folks who are in your seat and folks who are in like the VP of sales seat. So they can quantify the value properly um, and get, you know, and get that, that resource and, and get the, I don't want to say the respect, I don't think, but um, get the risk. I guess I will the respect necessary that, that the role deserves um, in getting in there early and helping, you know, build this thing out. Yeah, I mean, let, let, let's paint, in a, paint a scenario, right? If you if you go and launch a business without a sales enablement function, right? Let's think of all the things that you've got to go back and retrospectively unpick, right? If you've got the wrong sales process, unpicking a sales process is almost impossible, right? If you've got the wrong deal qualification methodology, if you've got the wrong sales methodology, if you don't have the content in place to upskill and train the staff, if you don't have the right coaching cadences and formats with, with, with the managers who are coaching the staff. And on top of that... People only look at um, pe- people only uh, build process for their current state. They never build process for Series B, Series C, IPO. 
So we, what these businesses do is they start a small business without that structure in place for meaningful growth. They hit the growth they get and then they go, let's restart. It's going to hire 100 people and we've got this sort of shitty process in place. Let's just hope it works for them. You know, it's like putting a jigsaw puzzle together. You don't just start putting pieces together. You organize where they go. You get the sides, you get the corners, you get the colors, you put them in place with the view of completing the task, right? So what I always try and ask CEOs to do, or, or even founders, is what are you actually aiming for? If you're aiming for early stage growth, you'll get that really quickly. And it's not that hard. But then you're in big trouble because then you've got to grow from a bigger base and you've got to add people in there. And when you add people in there and you haven't got processes in place, you're fucked. You're in big, big trouble because you've now got to go and unpick it and start again. What would your dream business look like from day one for when you want to IPO? Because you should be building that now. Um, that's the title of the episode. If you've, if you've got people and no process, you're fucked. That's, that's <laughs> yeah. That. yeah. Well, he's, Aaron, Aaron said it very similar to what I say is like, I'm, I'm trying to build for scale in the future, but I'm trying to build it right now from day one. Yeah. One of the things I, I see a lot, and I think it aligns with what Scott's saying is that, you know, the C-suite the C doesn't under, even understand. And sometimes even the CRO or the VP of sales, I don't think they understand the nuance that's been, that's evolved for sales enablement. Right. And so what do you think, you know, if you're thinking about bringing sales enablement, right? Like what's the right kind of person, you know, is it the, you know, so often people are like, oh, let's promote someone from within and they've helped do some interviewing and they've helped train and onboard, but you know, maybe they're a B minus player, but we still like them, you know, like what are the skill sets of a, of a strong enablement person? And I also understand it could vary at series A versus B versus, you know, a, you know, a 500 person company. Yeah, it's a really good question. And, and, and to be honest with you, I've been in the situation. I've, I've had to hire people, right? And you, you've got to remember what, what fundamentally motivates sales enablement is that they are change agents. They don't go in there and go, everything's done, let's stop. Their job is constantly about implementing change, right? So, an improvement. So, whether you're training someone, you're there to change them, to improve them, or you're, you know, you've got a new product launch, or you've got a new a feature of a product coming out. Your job is to go in there and show them how this change is taking place. And I think sales enablement people who are motivated by changing is the key thing for me right if i was to hire a sales enablement person now and say look everything's in place it's all purring like a you know like a cat all you've got to do is sit there and watch it they'll probably get really bored really really quickly so what i'm always looking for when i'm when i'm hiring a, la a layer lower than me is someone who is excited and completely motivated by disruption they've got to come in and go the world we're in now is not going to look the same tomorrow or the day after the day after that day after that. And then they get addicted to that change and they get addicted to actually implementing change. Um, do, you the, do you see that oftentimes people say they want sales enablement? And to your point, I love this being a change agent, but even salespeople love to refuse change. Even executives are like, you know, change is good in theory, but not here. Right. Every, every, everybody says, you know, you know, you know, beg for forgiveness and ask rather than ask for permission. And they love saying that until it happens to them, until someone actually needs to come to them and beg for forgiveness. Right. And uh, so I'm curious. How how does even a good sales and person encourage that change, even when, you know, they're, they're still headwinds, right? They're getting mixed signals. Yes, we want it. On the other hand, don't change anything. It's such a good question. Like the, the biggest hurdle you often come 
to as, as a sales enablement, you know, rep or director or whatever you are, is that people don't like change. And sometimes your change you're making isn't for the better. Rolling out a new comm scheme, your, your biggest selling person is about to lose 30% of their, of their, 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 their income. It's hard, right? But this is why corporate values are so key, like genuine corporate values, particularly with startups, is that you're going in there and you've got to explain the context of, of the change. It's so critical. Like going in there and just changing things, you don't win anyone over, right? A large part of our role is winning hearts and minds and explaining the reason for this change and painting a picture of what the world's going to look like in six months, 12 months' time. Because it's easy to turn around and go, I'm, I'm cutting your commission and getting someone to moan about it. It's a lot harder when you go, I'm cutting your commission because if you keep money, making money at this rate, we're not going to survive as a business. So the critical thing for us is that we're going to lower your commission to help the business survive. And at the same time, there's other opportunities that we can look to. But it's about fairness, right? And this is why those corporate values are so key. The decisions you make should be looked, should be through the lens of those corporate values. People talk about corporate values. How do, you, how, do you then, how do you then compensate someone in sales enablement? Is it based on the revenue and the number? Because I think sometimes people see it and they're like, oh, well, let's just make them, you know, they got to hit the number and the team's got to hit the number. Is that the right way to, to, you know, reward a sales enablement person in a comp plan? Yeah, I think it should be consistent with what the business is trying to achieve. And that happens at an objective level and an outcome level. So you often see quarterly objectives, which are tied into a bonus structure that's quarterly or sometimes sometimes annually. But look, we can't shy away from ROI. We have to we have to back ourselves when it comes to return on investment in a sales enablement function. And if people aren't doing that, I worry they're too operational. And it's like you probably deserve to be working in sales ops where you're building Salesforce process or whatnot. But you, you have to back yourself in sales enablement that the things you're doing are going to result in the desired outcomes of the business. It's, it's critical. And I think it should be a blend of objectives and it should be a blend of outcomes. So you're in, so you're 100% in favor of bonusing sales enablement as opposed to being 100% salary. Oh, 100%. 100%. No matter, yeah. no, matter, no matter what the comp is. So like, let's, let's say I had a $150,000 budget. Okay. Mm -hmm. So you, if you were hiring, you would advise me, okay, rather than pay somebody 150K salary, mm -hmm pay them, you know, 120 with 30K worth of bonuses to get to 150. That, that, that would be your advice. You, 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 want the, you want the bonus to be tied into the core outcomes and objectives of the business in a financial level, right? AOV is the increased AOV, average order value is the critical thing. Why would you not incentivize sales enablement to get that right? If you want to grow the business by 20%, why would you not do that with sales enablement? Everything you're doing is designed to enable those things to happen. If you fuck it up, it's not going to happen. Scott, do you agree with that? I'm curious if you ask the question because you agree or disagree, or you're just curious. Um, I don't know if I agree or disagree. I, I can tell you that the last place that I hired a head of sales ops, I decided not to bonus them and just comp them max OTE. I also knew this person uh, and worked with them before, and and you know, she was not going to fail or miss anything that I asked her to to, to do. So. <clears throat> And she was more comfortable with not having the the bonus there. I totally get Aaron's point, um, and I, I, I'm not say I I would not go so far as to say I disagree with him. Um, it's just an interesting debate, and I've heard people do it different ways. So that that was yeah. the, the reason for my my question. But. I think I think you need an overlap of sales culture, right? Because for sales enablement to truly work, it needs to understand sales culture. 
And a large part of that sales culture is actually motivating people by the outcomes that they actually deliver. Yeah. yeah. That for me is, is key. I've seen it fall down where the sales enablement team has never worked with sales or in sales. In, in, in this particular case, also, it should be stated that this was a person that had been an account executive, a senior account executive, a sales manager, an SDR manager, right? Like, understand sales to a T and had a significant chunk of equity. So, you know, is therefore motivated to grow the business um, as well. But what's the pivot? Oh, go ahead, Scott. I was going to pivot the conversation a little bit and, and, and give Aaron, uh, you know, um, an unlimited pot of gold. What is your like ideal tech stack in in the very beginning for like an early stage kind of company? And and what's the what's in the like must have bucket for you? What's the nice to have bucket? And what's like the you know if I had unlimited riches, this is what I would would do. I wouldn't buy a lot, funnily enough. I'd buy a CRM because that's I love it. this. Actually, I absolutely love this. Now, now I really want to know. Well, the the reason why is really simple. I'm a big believer in building it first, getting them addicted to it, and then going to market because then you're happy that there's adoption, right? And also, you build it and it's clunky. So then, when you bring the product in, they're like, "This is amazing! I can now use this to do what I need it to do." So I've spent a career working for startups and big businesses where building it myself and having these processes and these tools and templates myself and then going to market. The worst thing you want to do is go in there and go, we've got six tools for you to use. You need to use them every day. Like, I haven't got time for that. Yeah, no. You can get addicted to using it. There's all sorts of data that says, you know, you you have all these tools and like 40% of the team is actually using them. Yeah. Yeah, that's, it's, you know what it is, man? It's, it's so true. It's like, I'm trying to think of, of, of an example, but it's like, you know, it's like, it's like, it's basically like teaching someone to fish and then you start by giving them the greatest, you know, basically giving them a bloody whale gun, right? You know, that's what you want to teach a business. I'd much rather give them a piece of string that they tie to the end of their toe and then they try it and use it and go, this is really good. I can see why this works now but it doesn't work well. Okay, here's a fishing rod. Ah, I get it now. Because then they're likely to use it, right? Um, so yeah. You said, you said this, I heard you say before I kind of chimed in, interrupted you. You said the CRM for sure. Mm. What is there anything else that is a must have? Well, there's must, there's must have, there's must have um, systems, right? Like a like a competency framework is critical, but I wouldn't go and buy something straight away. Like okay. your qualification methodology. Is there any is there is there any other tool that you that you would buy beyond a, a CRM? And the answer might be no, which is well, there is, interesting. There is, there is, but it probably doesn't exist, right? So what, what I found something really interesting in SARS Neighborhood Tech Stats is everyone's trying to do one thing really, really well, and the market is crying out for centralization. They're crying out for something that does conversation analytics, competency scoring, uh, matched up to your CRM so you can see what stage it's at, um, coaching feedback, you know, all the core things that you want to bring together and go, oh, this does what I need it to do. LMS mixed in there, sales readiness tool. Richard, Richard, Aaron is basically lobbying for consolidation amongst all of our sponsors. There you go. (laughs) And I I actually, I actually know of one that's not a sponsor that is probably the closest I've seen to it. Um, I bet it's Mind Tickle. Nope. Ah, I think Mind Tickle for me is the one that's winning the race. Yeah. 
what, what, and what do you like? I mean, look, they're not a sponsor. I know, I know them. I actually interviewed with them as their first head of sales when they were like three people strong and I didn't get the gig. And I told them like, you're hiring someone who's, who knows how to talk to HR, but you're not hiring anybody who knows how to sell. And six months later, I got the call of like, you know, you were right. <laughs> we shouldn't have hired that guy. So. so I know, I know, I know Mohit pretty decently well. Um, but uh, what, what do you like about that? Because, and not in the sense that we're trying to pitch them, but like, yeah. these are the elements that make this better if you're an enablement and, you know, here's why it's better for you, but here's why it's better for the team. Well, yeah, I mean, look, the thing for me is that when you centralize all of these tools, all of a sudden what happens is, is you, you, you kind of build a talent roadmap inadvertently. You can start understanding um, all the scoring on someone's performance, all the, all the conversions of someone's performance, all the competency they're doing well, all of the outcomes that they're getting. And then you've got this big, huge data point that's bringing all the important things in sales together. And then your model becomes predictive. We say, we need more people like that. Let's model their behavior. Well, at the moment, I've got, you know, we used Gong as an example. Gong's great, but it works in isolation. I want to be able to twin it to my competency framework and go, this is the competency we're working on. Here's the improvement within that competency. I also want the LMS to be predictive after we use Gong and it goes, here's where you're going wrong. Here's free videos to go and watch to improve that competency and we'll coach you on it. And then I want my coaching to, to collaborate with it. The, the problem is, is that everyone's trying to niche down. And the way I see the market moving in two or three years is they're actually going to defragment and go up because the need from sales enablement is becoming more and the amount of tools in the market are becoming more. And someone's going to do every little bit of it quite well, not perfectly, but at least it's all going to talk to each other. And then sales enablement teams are going to go, where have you been all my life? I've been, you know, basically rolling out product after product after product. You're just one thing that does all of it. And guess what? I don't have to keep trying to remind people to use things because it all talks to each other. And adoption will go through the roof, right? It's just, you know, it's, it's, it does seem a bit bamboozling for me to the point where I've actually sat there and started sketching out, oh, what would that look like? I wonder if I could build it. I wonder if I could pay yeah. someone to build it for me. <laughs> it's a big market opportunity for you, man. Oh, yeah, um, 100%. Question about getting to a particular size and scale, and, and that is um, the global kind of considerations. If you're running sales enablement and you've got a global team as opposed just to a domestic team, what do you got to do differently? What, what, is, what is somebody who's running a domestic team right now but prepared to uh, go global what do they need to think about? What do they need to prepare for? What's going to trip them up that they're maybe not thinking about? Yeah, I think there's, there's obviously market nuance, right? Like uh, I've, I've sold into or, or set sales enablement functions up, I should say, in, in, in multiple markets. And, you know, I've worked, I've worked in US and worked in, in Canada. There's a big cultural difference between the two in the way that you go and sell, right? Um, so that's one consideration. You know, it's, it's, it's like eating the way I look at it. Everyone has to eat, but we all eat differently across the globe. Like, you know, Asia uses chopsticks. You go to the Middle East, they use their hands and fingers. We use knives and forks, or you guys all eat pizza, right? So you just use your hands as well. Right? So, so it, it's still sales, but you've got to take into account that they do it slightly differently. So there's market nuance over there, right? And it's not always considered. They think you just grab something from Europe, pop it in America, or grab something from America and pop it in Europe. Or, or even weirder is when you start looking at Asia, grab something in US and pop it in Asia. So that's not going to happen. You, you're going to have to be flexible in doing that. Um, but again, it, it goes back to what we said before, is that you, you get all the foundations in place and you perfect what they look like. And then you just 
drag and drop that into another country, knowing that those processes work. The, the, the consistency and centralization is key because head, head office want to know what's going on in those other countries and those other geographies. Um, and making sure that you can just lift what works and put it over there is good. The other thing I consider is that you want to take some of your head office culture over there. So my dream scenario is, is I have someone working with me for a year or so with the view of them then moving out to Oz and opening an office over there. So you're taking all the cool and important parts of that culture over there. When you hire to the local market, they don't understand what head office is about. And then they become this weird satellite office that feels really unloved because all the fun's happening in head office. Whereas if you take part of that culture out there, you're taking the best bits of it, right? The, the good stuff that works and embedding it into that culture as well. Yeah. But from a, from, a, from a basic sales enablement point of view, you should have the secret sauce already. You should have the recipe in place. You just got to lift it and pop it in another country. Well, that, that, that speaks a lot to like how you scale the sales enablement group. You know, you're, you're saying, I'd like to have this person here for a year in the head office, kind of like an apprenticeship almost. And then plant them out in the satellite office so that the culture continuity is stronger. How else are you scaling a sales enablement team? So let, let, let's say you're the first guy who's, who's come into our startup and you know, we, we, we get to a million dollars in ARR from zero, you know, maybe with just you. Mm. How, how, how are you building out your team? Like what's your second hire? Or your, what's your first hire and your second hire and your third hire? Is it like a Salesforce admin person? Is it, you know, somebody who's uh, focused on, on vendors and the, and the tools? How do you build that out? This is a question that, that, I, that I get asked all the time. And I'm, I'm curious your take and what order you would build out your team. No, I'd look way more towards the sales trainer side of it. Again, because it's about execution, right? You, sh you should have built the processes in place. Yeah. Even the processes of communicating from one sales enablement rep to the other should be built in place and the translation of that communication. But what comes after the, the sales training side? Or just is it just more and more and more people who skew towards the training side and less people that yeah, are passes? But it's more about execution is my key thing, right? Like the, the, the build should come from the very top of the sales enablement organization, right? So it should be the sales enablement director or, or, or whatever that role is. They're responsible for the build in collaboration with their staff members, right? So they should liaise and work with them and build, bring them in for the context of those decisions. But localized sales enablement is all about execution. That's why we have sales enablement reps, right? They're, they're, it's, it's, you know, it's, it's no different from sales. The reps are the ones picking up the call and executing. Managers are the one that are basically guiding the process and guiding the decisions and, and guiding the, you know, hopefully the outcomes. So I, I see it as being that the, the rep is on the ground with execution. And again, it's not just sales training that they're executing on, right? So again, new part of the product or onboarding or um, certification of a certain part of the sales process, it's still delivery and execution, but they're less involved in the strategic side of it. And the rule of thumb is one sales enablement rep per 60 reps. Yeah. That, that's really that's that's a really good ratio that I that I hope people pay attention to. You just and I've never heard somebody give such a definitive answer like that. One sales enablement person for every sixty reps. Yeah, yeah. Go ahead, Richard. Then, so does that mean enablements enabling the managers over those sixty reps rather than yeah. just the reps? So they're they're working to manage the managers. Yeah, the core objective of every sales enablement function is to turn the policing into the local management level. That's, that's always the goal. 
is that the managers are, are equipped with the skills and equipped with the competency and systems and processes to go and do your job at a local level. So whether that's understanding sales process right through to tactical coaching and training. You have big projects that run which are outside of management, again, like things like product launches and things like moving into new markets or different use case comes in. But you're always trying to turn that accountability onto the manager. Got it. Well, let's let's shift entirely, like something completely different, because um, you clearly have a wealth of knowledge. I know people would certainly want to connect with you on LinkedIn, but you actually have a YouTube channel. And we want to talk about this because we put stuff on YouTube. So one, I want you to tell people where it's at, but how do you even grow that, right? So many of us in sales are, you know, we're so hedged down on LinkedIn, right? Social selling there, which matters as a salesperson. But what advice do you give those people who are like, well, let me go try this other channel? Yeah, it's a good question. I mean, just to be clear, my LinkedIn channel hasn't got millions and millions of, sorry, my YouTube channel has got millions and millions of subscribers. But I think the reason people connect with my YouTube channel is because of its purpose, right? Is that during lockdown, I just turned around and said, look, I've got quite a lot of knowledge in sales and my, and I just want to give it away. I just want everyone to have it, right? And people bought into that because it was it was authentic and consistent and, and truthful. And then I just built this community of people who were just like, hey, like, I've been in sales for 25 minutes and I find your stuff really, really cool. Uh, you know, I've subscribed. But the other thing is that you guys have got like, you've got a massive network on LinkedIn and you've obviously got a big audience on here. And your objective should be to try and migrate that onto YouTube, providing you're offering something different. If yeah, we, don't, YouTube, we, don't, we don't know how. Right. This is, this, this is our struggle. Like, I, we agree with you, but it's like, we don't know how to do it with our bandwidth that we have and, and, and whatnot. So, you know, we're always like interested and impressed when people have, you know, grown their, their YouTube channel and are monetizing the YouTube, all this kind of stuff. So, it's, uh, we're looking we're looking for tips and tricks from people who are better than us. Yeah, well, the thing is, is that if it's just a case of putting your podcast on YouTube, it's probably not the right format because your listeners already listen to it, right? But if there's something extra you're offering that your listeners aren't getting from just your podcast, they'll go to YouTube. But it's about, it's your content's the key thing. What's the content you're offering, right? Which is obvious, and I'm sure you know that already, but you're trying to migrate an audience. And the reason I migrated my LinkedIn audience is because everything I was doing was just text. It was just like, here's a tip, here's a tip. And then I turned around and posted a video and someone went, wow, this is amazing. Now, do, you, do, you, do you do those videos on LinkedIn also, or do the videos just go on YouTube? I just put them on YouTube and then I just do a text post to say, if you want to learn more about this, click click the link in the comments. It takes them through to my uh, YouTube channel. Interesting, interesting. That, that's a lot of extra work for us, man. Like, I can see Scott and I are like, this is cool. But, I think what you're trying to say is that uh, the value people get from seeing our handsome faces is less than we think. <laughs> there's no value there. We just thought there might be, but there's not. Right. It may even be that there's increased value by not seeing them, that the podcast actually works better because the value add is they don't get to see our faces. I have got to the podcast. So that's awesome. What, um, so why do you think it was COVID that made you do that though? Was it, I mean, you clearly had a job and a role where, you, you know, is the goal to, to make the side hustle the business? Is the goal to, you know, is the side hustle the business? Like what's all that mean for you? No, it was, it was, it was sort of a bit of sadness really. I just seeing these, you know, those little green circles around people's LinkedIn profiles where everyone was like, I've lost my job. I've lost my job. And I was like, Christ, this is like, 
was really depressing, right? Like seeing your connections losing a job. And um, why not upskill them in that time? Why not do what I do anyway and just put it on YouTube and they can get some value and it might help them get a job or it might help them better in their new job so they can keep their job. And it's just really depressing, right? Like seeing these poor people losing their livelihood overnight. Um, yeah, I don't, I don't want to turn this into a job. It, it genuinely is driven by trying to help people, which again, interestingly, is another characteristic I'd look for in hiring a sales enablement person, is that they've got to be motivated by helping people. If they're not, their job will become very difficult very, very quickly, because it's one of the fundamentals of the job. And I'm not saying that I'm some mother Teresa or anything like that, but it just felt like the right thing to do and the audience responded to it accordingly. Yeah, I think, I think that this is really interesting and I appreciate that. And I like the fact that you've got those two pieces because it's, it, those are the pieces I think we all look for. But as you think about it from an enablement perspective in terms of hiring someone, being a change agent and then wanting to help people, um, those are really, really critical. Um, so we're gonna you know, turn it over to you for a second, let you ask us a question, but certainly wanna give a, a shout out to our, our sponsors of uh, Gong, uh, Lead 411, Salesforce, Sales Cloud, and uh, Vidyard. So thank you everybody for sponsoring us. But, you know, Aaron, what is, uh, you know, is there a question we can answer for you? Yeah, there is actually. I think it was Scott's post today. I think Scott, I think you posted your financial performance over the last 20 years. Is that right? Did I see that? Yeah, I did. I was, this was, I was like super scared. So this I is had four people, four people have reached out to me to go, what is Scott doing? But the question is actually interesting, right? Is that true, Richard? Yes. Interesting. Though so I, I was pretty scared to to post this, to be honest with you, and I almost I almost didn't do it for a lot of different reasons. I've been so scared that I have not even looked at it, so I don't even I don't know how many comments it's gotten. I don't know if people are trashing me or if they like it. I have no clue. That's how scared I am. The the, the question I have, I, th I think I think the tone was right. I didn't think it was a kind of hey, look at me, I'm a bit of a legend. I, di I didn't get that from it, right? There's, there's something to learn from that, right? And I found it a really, really interesting post. But if, if, if there's literally one single tiny piece of advice you can give someone that helped you go on that road. Now, I know you, you put in there about being in the hospital, which I think is a great motivator of being unwell, I think it was, right? What's the one piece of advice you'd give someone to get them on that road to seeing sustainable, long-lasting success? Even if it's a mindset thing, right? Not necessarily a skill. Uh, just that I think that it just that there's no like quick fix and 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 I worry a lot in this kind of uh, creator economy that we have in this you know everybody wants a promotion in two seconds type of thing but I, I worry that people are skipping over all the years of of learning and losing and failing and, and struggling to figure out how to win and to get better um, and, and, and just trying to go straight away to being, you know, massive success, like, like on their own. I mean, there's people that I see all the time who I know did not do very well in their role who now coach other people in that particular role. Mm. And I'm just like, what, what is happening a little bit? And, and so I think what I want people to know is, um, I've been at this for a long time. Richard's been at this for a very long time. You know, Richard was a lot braver than me and went out on his own sooner than me. Um, I only went out on my own a year and a half or so ago. 
I put in a lot of time, like building up, you know, skills, um, maturity, frankly, uh, general business acumen, a massive network. And, and there was a podcast that I did called the one percenter show with Paul Salamanca and Tom Picard. Yeah. Where, where I described, um, when I quit, I didn't start from the zero yard line, the one yard line. When I quit, I started from the 40 yard line. So I, I had an advantage, mm. right? Because of all these things that I had done along the way. And so I think the one thing I'd want people to learn is like that grind that some of us have gone through for a very long time is why we're able to do some of the things that we're able to do now. And if we would have skipped that, I don't know that the same things happening to me today would be possible. Great answer. I agree as well. I wholeheartedly agree. Thanks. Now I got to figure out which four people are coming after you, Richard. <laughs> now I'm terrified. I'm terrified to look at my at the post now. But I, I'm gonna. It's gonna cone be of awesome. silence. Cone of silence. So, <laughs> so they they they. They're, they're probably people uh, you know and love and uh, no, nobody was negative about it. They were just like, oh, yeah, wow, he's really yeah, open about it. Here's, so. here's the other thing. We don't really have too much time left to get into this, but like, why is talking about money a criminal offense? That's what I, that's what I've told everybody. Scott doesn't have, that's Scott's opinion is like, why should I, I don't, I don't understand. It, it, it's one thing to talk about it and be braggadocious about it. Right. And be like, Oh, look at my fucking Ferrari. And I fly, fly first class that like, you know, look at me, dude. Come on. I, yeah, it's, I, time. It's, the time, it's the time, right? I mean, it's, it's the yeah, time. It's the of it, but like, you know, why is it so bad to talk about what you're earning along the way in your career, especially in a field like sales, where I think, you know, a lot of people, if not most, originally got into it because you can earn a lot. And yet anybody who talks about money is suddenly vilified and criminalized. I, I don't understand nor agree with that. So you know, every now and then I throw things out there to try to, you know, shun the taboo around financials. Oh, I thought it was fine. I, did, I didn't see it as being in any way obnoxious. I thought it was. And, and you, you, you know, you found an enable, you know, someone who wants to be an enablement because they value change. They, they are passionate about making people change. So there yeah. you, go. you can hire Scott now. <laughs> you might hire him in a heartbeat, mate. <laughs> you obviously know something he's doing that well. Yeah. Uh, Aaron, so thank you for spending time with us, man. That's been a lot of fun. I really appreciate it, guys. Yeah, it was yeah. a lot of fun, man. Good, good to know you and get to know you. Appreciate it. Likewise. Cheers, guys.